The next chapter with Prim Sarikapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next chapter, executive produced by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. I'm Prim, your host. This week's guest is former Duke and NBA basketball player and currently the assistant coach for the Blue Devils men's basketball team, Nolan Smith. In high school, Nolan earned McDonald's All-American honors and a full ride to Duke where he helped lead the Blue Devils to three consecutive ACC championships and the program's fourth NCAA title. After graduating from Duke, Nolan was selected with the 21st overall pick by the Portland Trailblazers. And after a few years in the NBA and playing overseas, Nolan decided to hang it up and make the transition to coaching. In 2016, he returned to his alma mater to work alongside his former coach. Of course, that's Coach Mike Krzyzewski, who is on his way out. But Nolan has nonetheless remained in Durham, North Carolina ever since. The main focus of our conversation is about how Nolan's childhood has shaped him as a person, as an athlete, now as a husband, a father, a coach, also as a social activist. And one area we discuss is the sudden death of his father at just eight years old. Nolan's path is actually very similar, eerily similar to that of his father, Derek, who also played basketball and won a national championship in college while he was at Louisville. And he also played in the NBA for many years and and coached after his playing days. So there are certainly a lot of parallels in both their journeys. Now, as many of you know, I'm a PhD student at Fordham University's Counseling Psychology Program, and Nolan's story makes me think of a group presentation I did on children who have lost a parental figure. And I chose that project because we were in the middle of a pandemic, and at the time, and even now, there were a lot of children who were suffering because they had lost a or multiple family members. And what I learned was just how hard and potentially traumatic that experience can be on children. In fact, individuals who experience parental loss are more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and substance abuse disorders. And experiencing significant loss like the death of a parent increases a child's likelihood of suffering medical illness, psychiatric illness, and even suicidal risk in adulthood. And clearly, the consequences for bereaved children are real, and they're significant. And while many of those things I just mentioned weren't necessarily a part of Nolan's journey, as you'll hear in our conversation, losing a parent affects everything you do in every phase of your life, no matter how long it's been. I really hope you not only enjoy this open and honest and deep conversation with Nolan, but take something out of it. And I should mention that we recorded this interview last year during the summer of 2021, and he had just gotten promoted to assistant coach with the Duke men's basketball team. So without further ado, here's Nolan Smith. Hello, Nolan. Hey, 
Congratulations on the recent promotion. Big deal. It's been about a month and I know you're sitting in your new decorated office. (laughs) Yeah, very decorated. A nice paint job that was just recently done. (laughs) It is that bright blue, the Duke blue. I absolutely love it. How you been? I've been great. Been great. Adjusting to the new position. Uh, Phone's been off the hook now as as an official recruiter, so that's that's been a lot of fun. But life is good. Uh, ended the COVID season, which was a crazy season. I'm sure you can imagine it was wild. But uh, life is slowing down a little bit, so just family life and in the office having good coaches meetings with the staff. How excited are you to have that assistant coach title next to your name? I'm very excited. This was always. Kind of the plan, not kind of, it was the plan. It was the vision that once once the ball stopped that I would become a coach. Didn't know where, didn't know how it happened, but that's, that's life. You never know where and how and when. It happened at a different time and, you know, it happened because of injuries that it came a lot sooner than I thought it would have came. But at 27 years old, 26 years old um, is when it happened. I tore my ACL twice, back, ended up back here at Duke doing my rehab and then Boom. Fast forward. I'm the director of basketball operations for a couple of years. And now I'm a assistant coach at Duke back where, where I played my college career, which is amazing to even be able to say that. That is really unbelievable. I'm one of those people that believes things happen for a reason. And I feel like you're on the track to, you know, where you want to go. And I know that being a head coach is kind of in your purview, your North Star. So you're obviously putting yourself in a really good position to achieve that. But I'm so excited for our conversation today. I'm going to dive in because I feel like this hour is really going to fly by. And I feel like I and so many people know you pretty well as an athlete. We've seen what you can do on the basketball court. We've also gotten to see you as a coach. But I don't know a ton about Nolan as a little kid. You and I were just talking, so we know you're a very quiet baby. And once you turned two and a half or three, kind of like turned it up a little as a toddler. So <laughs> so I want to learn a little bit more about you and that childhood, because I'm, I'm just kind of a firm believer that our past shapes so much of who we become as adults. Yeah. Let's kind of just start from the beginning. You were born in Louisville, right? Louisville, Kentucky. Yep. And you grew up in Maryland, the D.C. area. Grew up in PG County, Maryland, uh, pretty much all over in different cities in, in PG County, Upper Marlboro. Largo, Bowie, Maryland, so all over Prince George's County. What was your childhood like? Oh, man. My childhood was filled with sports. I played a lot of sports. And I'll, I'll say my life, my life, early life that has grown me to where I am really started at eight years old. Eight years old is when I lost my dad. Hmm. And my dad passed away very suddenly on a cruise ship um, with the Washington Bullets. He was coaching the Washington Bullets. And we were on a on a cruise with the whole team and front office and families were there. It was a amazing day. And then um, he he passed away on the cruise. So I'd say at that point in my life, everything changed, and my whole purpose in life was dictated because of that day. And from that day, I I, I became a mentor to others that have also lost their parents and. Two of the closest ones that I was able to mentor were Quinn Cook, who is now like my little brother, also Duke alumni, and um, Eric Atkins, who played played basketball at Notre Dame. He he lost his his dad at a young age. So being able to be that mentor for them 
has really made me the big brother now coach that I am. Um, but as a child growing up, I, I use sports as my outlet. I use sports and then the friends that I made in sports, they helped me get through my my, my grieving time and period of, of life that I was going through as, as a young child and then teenager. But sports was able to, I was able to block out everything that I was going through emotionally. And that's how basketball became my, my getaway. The gym became my sanctuary that no matter how I was feeling sad, mad, I went to the gym and I was just focused on that. So I had about two hours or three hours where I didn't think about anything else but making shots and having fun playing the game that I loved. And then from there, it it took off and I was able to do some pretty good things with a, with the basketball and with, with my life and my career. Hmm. I feel like sports can be such a great vehicle for a great coping mechanism for so many of us. But I think that also one thing I've also realized too, in my own personal journey and becoming an adult, it's also really important to deal with those issues as well and not just rely on sports. So I'll I'll be interested to kind of explore that a little bit with you, but thank you for sharing that about your, your dad. I know that that is an important part of your journey. I also feel like a lot of people ask you, about it as well. And I'm curious if your answer seems to change as you get older. I would imagine your 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 memories and also your, your perspective changes from 18 to when you're in college and then now as a man entering your 30s and also as a father. But how does your answer change? It definitely changes because I think my perspective on life changes the older the older I get. So <laughs> If if somebody asks me, you know, as an eight year old, how how are you dealing with the death of your dad? It's like, oh, I'm good. You know, I'm playing basketball and I know he's watching. But it's always I'm good, I'm good. But then I turned 21, 22, I graduated from college, and I started to realize I could let out my emotion more. Like, man, it's hard. You know, I remember somebody asked me, I was like, well, my dad wasn't at my graduation. My dad wasn't around when I got drafted. So I was able to let out my emotions, and I went through a period where. I cried more. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it was happy tears because I was able to use the memories that a lot of people gave me of my dad in order to achieve a lot of my goals. So I used it as motivation to make my dad proud. But now you ask me at 32 years old, how do I use it? It's the mentorship. It's who my dad was that now I'm able to be that man and, tr- and still becoming that man as a father trying to be the loving dad that my dad was in eight years. You know, I always tell people like my, my what my dad did in eight years has stuck with me because he took me to the gym with him, to practices, with Washington Bullets. I remember all of these things. I remember Chris Weber taking me for a ride in his summer because my dad was like, yeah, you can go for a ride with C-Web. Um, <laughs> like, I remember all that stuff as an eight-year-old. So now for me as a coach, I, I always want to involve my kids. I want to make sure my kids are around even though I might be on the road a lot or I'm busy with coaches meetings to involve my children, you know, because tomorrow is not promised, you know? So just that wisdom that I now have as a third zero, the answer has changed as, as I've gotten older. And that's, that's kind of been the involvement of, of life for me. Mm -hmm. So flashback to that cruise ship, I believe it it was in 1996, right? Yeah. 
I don't believe your father was even supposed to be on the like you guys weren't supposed to be on the cruise. It was you know for the Washington Bullets, and I think a player had backed out. Yeah. And then at the last minute, then you guys decide to go. So what do you remember of that whole experience? Just looking back at that. Yeah, it was it was crazy. So I mean, I talked to my mom about. It. My mom would tell you my dad didn't even like cruises. <laughs> it, is, it is it is funny. I don't like cruises either. My wife and I went on a cruise for our honeymoon. Um, to Jamaica. And I was the same way. I didn't like cruises. And because my last amount of cruise was when my dad passed away. So there's a lot going on. But oh my gosh. I know my dad didn't like cruises. She was like, he wasn't a fan of the big body of water <laughs> being out there in the middle of the ocean. But we went and my dad was amazing with, with children and he ran the clinic, the daily basketball clinic that they did on the cruise. I was a part of it and it was just a great time. We were having an amazing day. And then that night, I remember my sister and I were with the kids in the kids' room. And I remember on a loudspeaker, they said, Monica Smith, can you please come to the top floor um, bar area where all the coaches and everybody was? And I, my sister and I, she, I remember we looked at each other and we're like, why are, we, why are they calling for my mom on a loudspeaker like that? So I remember we went to where they could tell my mom to come to. And I remember just seeing my dad there just laying very still. And at that moment, my mom came out of the room and just kind of held us. So that, that, that right there was kind of how it went. And then we got back, it kind of started to feel real. At that moment, it didn't feel real. You're just like, what's going on? What's going on? Where's my dad? Or my sister was starting to cry. But I just remember I always just had like this blank look on my face, blank look on my face, blank feeling, didn't really know how to feel. And as a family, as as time passed, we, we buried my dad in Louisville. The funeral for me was like a look at all the celebrities. <laughs> it, was, it was filled with celebrities. So it kind of showed me just like how cool my dad was. Mm. All the NBA players, Charles Barkley, he'll say today, my dad was one of his favorite teammates. And all of these people that were, were part of my dad's life that showed up on this day. I just remember an eight-year-old, I was starstruck but still had that blank look on my face. Mm. What's going on? Just still stunned. But as the family, we were able to get through it. You know, we went to family counseling. That really helped the family to get over the initial shock. You're never going to get over it, but you get over the initial shock. And that, that helped us as a family. That is so amazing that you guys went to family counseling because I think it's... It is so, it's so difficult. And I think regardless of what age you are, I think it impact the death of a family member, especially a parental figure can impact a child in so many different ways. Um, and I only have tangentially some, a glimpse of it. My husband, actually, his um, father died when he was seven years old, albeit a very different circumstance. He committed suicide. But I've gotten into a glimpse into what happens to the family dynamics. And all of a sudden, it's like now it's on your shoulders to be the man of the family, to be the leader, and also a parent in some ways. And the mother, all of a sudden, now you go from two parents and now it's a single parent household and just like the level of responsibility and 
you know, I think as a child too, you begin to look for other role models as well. It's like, well, where else can I find this father figure type and who else can help lead the way? And I, you know, I think I had read your mother mentioning something in an article about it's like now all of a sudden I have to be a mother and a father and I have to prepare for this as Nolan and my kids are both entering their teenage years, which, you know, as we all know, it's like a huge developmental period. So at eight years old, how do you think that affected you? Because I feel like you were young enough where maybe, I don't know what the impact was, but you're definitely old enough to like know what's going on. Yes. The impact was, was huge. And I think it's, it's kind of something that stuck with me to this day. I, mean, I remember telling my mom and sister, I'm the man of the house now. And I carried that on. I carried it on every single year of my life as I got older, as I got drafted. My mom did remarry, but I still felt like I was the man of the house for her. <laughs> like, so I was always going to take care of my mom, always going to take care of my sister. Not taking on that burden, because it definitely wasn't a burden, but it was just something that when it came the way it came, that's just, boom, that's what you're supposed to do <laughs> as as the man of the house. You know, my sister is older than me, but, you know, she still, she comes to me like like a father figure, whether it's guys now or whatever the case may be. And I'll say, no, I don't like them. (laughs) I don't like them. So now I'm answering those questions as if I'm, I'm her dad taking on that as a, as a young child, you know, you never really want to show weakness. You never want to put anything on your mom. (laughs) Like, and that's kind of how I feel like a man had to be. So I was doing that at 10, 11 years old. So my mom, (laughs) she, she laughs at this story all the time, but we went to New York for Christmas. So Christmas is we really stopped celebrating them at home because it was emotional for my mom and for the family. So we started taking trips. We'd go to the Bahamas for, for Christmas. We'd go to New York and just see Broadway shows. So we started doing this in one trip. I never liked to ask my mom for stuff because I didn't want to feel like I was putting more on her plate. So I was wearing a size, I think, I think I was really a size 12. I was at a size nine shoe on. I think size 10. No and way. We were in New York walking around and my mom looked back. She's like, why are you limping? And I was like, <laughs> nothing. Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And she's like, do your feet hurt? And I was, <laughs> I was like, oh, thank no. God. So I remember we went to a, like the first store we saw right away. Boom, let's go in here. Take those shoes off. And she's like, no, why didn't you tell me that your feet had grown and that your feet were hurting? And I was like, why? Well, I just didn't want to tell you. I didn't want to put that on you. But I think that was kind of psychologically where I went. I didn't want to put more on her or on anybody. So I would just tough things out no matter what I was going through, trying to be the man of the house. Oh my gosh. How old were you? I think I was probably 10 or 11. Uh, I think it's the pregnancy hormones where everything that just like makes me cry and get emotional. You know, when you just turn into a parent, everything is just so different. Yes. And you talk about how like, it wasn't a burden, but it is. That's a huge, you, I mean, looking back and you hear yourself of like walking through the streets of New York, which by the way is no, you know, or any city is like, that's, that's not easy. And especially in shoes that are two sizes too small. And the fact that you didn't say something because you just didn't want to be a burden. And yet you did have this big burden on your shoulders. That's a huge burden for any kid to carry. 
And that's not anyone, that's not your fault. That's not, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that would, but it is, that's just so much weight. And I would imagine that shaped your childhood, that shaped who you are today and, and your childhood experiences too. Oh yeah. No, nah, definitely did. I mean, my, Chris, my Christmas list, even growing up, I would normally put one or two things on my Christmas list. That's it? I didn't want to put one. I was very, I was very easily pleased. Didn't need much to, to be happy. Maybe a video game or NBA player's jersey that I might have wanted, but I didn't. I didn't want or need much. But again, it always. I think for me, it always went back to the fact that I didn't want to put too much on my mom. That had to wear both hats. Was already driving from Annapolis, Maryland, to take my sister to tennis camps and tennis training, and driving back over here to take me to basketball. And she was already. I saw that she was already doing so much while while working. You know, she was already just stretching herself so many ways that my Christmas list didn't feel like it was something I needed to, oh, I need 20 things for Christmas because I've been great. Like, no, nah, I'm I'm good and I see what you're doing as a mom. I'm not going to put more on you to go out in the Christmas holiday shopping days and stress yourself out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Looking back, even though you, you didn't want to be a burden, but I mean... All kids have needs. I mean, we all have physical and safety, emotional needs and everything. Are you able to pinpoint like, you know what, even though I didn't say I needed something, like this is something that I really needed? No, not at all. I feel like I, I feel like because I had a roof over my head, I had everything. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom was able to keep food on our table and she, she, she had a really good job. So I always felt like I was fine. Mm-hmm. So when I look back, there's really nothing I, I'd say I regret not asking for because basketball was my love. So I always kept a pair of basketball shoes and a basketball. <laughs> so I had those two things. I was, I was good. So what happened in the years afterward? How did your relationship with basketball change with the passing of your father? Cause in some ways I know so much of that was connected to your dad because he played in the NBA for so long and was a coach, won a national championship as a college player. So it was rough for a little bit. You know, it was rough to where I didn't want to play. It wasn't really a, a passion there to play. You know, my mom would put me in camps and it just didn't, it didn't feel the same. It wasn't that, that love for it. And my mom, she never was going to force me to play the game. You know, even though she knew I loved it, she wasn't going to force me like, oh, you have to go to this game. You have to play for this team because this is what your dad would have wanted. She never, ever said those things. But then there was one day that it just clicked for me that, okay, basketball is going to be my, my release, my outlet to where I can still feel my connection to my dad and also find that that happy place where I'm not I'm not crying or I'm not sad. So it became really my motivation to play. And that's where I think it really took off for me because I ended up wanting to spend so many hours in the gym, you know, when my mom wasn't telling me to go read a book or something like that. I was I was in the gym. She would drop me off on Saturday mornings at a place called Run and Shoot that was open 24 hours, and I was in this gym with Ty Lawson, Kevin Durant, Michael Beasley, all the guys in, in the PG County area that I grew up with. We were all in there together, playing basketball, playing one-on-one, and that's where I was able to find true happiness as, as a young teenager. How old were you when you realized that basketball, that your relationship with basketball could be whatever you made it and that it could, rather than be a sad reminder, that it could also be your outlet as well? I was probably about 12 years old, four years removed from when my dad passed. I was like, okay, this is, 
this is an outlet for me. Not a lot of kids would be able to have that mature perspective. I've seen anecdotally some similar instances where kids will stop playing sports because it's so directly tied to just fill in the blank, whatever that is. So I think it's really important for people to kind of hear that where, you know, you can like change the perspective of your relationship with sport, even if it was tied to that one incident or that injury or that person or your sibling or your father or mother, whatever. And it sounds like that's really what you did. Definitely. My mom, and and again, she also put me in other sports. I played soccer for nine years. Oh, wow. During that eight to 13, eight to 14 period. So soccer, I tried baseball. I tried all these sports. And my mom, I think for her, sanity as well, keeping us busy. I think that was her way of knowing like we were good because I was when you're when you're playing with your friends, you're happy. You know, you're out kicking a soccer ball at soccer practice, you're happy. So trying to keep us as busy as she she possibly could, I think was part of her plan to make sure that we, you know, we we stayed kids. You know, she could obviously no mom, she like you said, she put the mom and dad hat on. She didn't want me to be the man of the house. (laughs) She didn't want me to be that. She wanted me to be a kid. So she put me in sports so I could remain a kid. So what sports did you play? And this is also a really important topic that I am passionate about, especially in day and age, as you know, with youth sports and early specialization and burnout and injuries and all this stuff. So list all the sports that you played during that period. I played played soccer, played football, I played tennis. tennis. Tennis was really my sport. Are you serious? Tennis was my sport. So Rex Carmen, he was the Louisville tennis coach. I think Rex is still there. I went to a Louisville basketball camp, won MVP, and then the next week went to tennis camp at Louisville and won MVP. Oh my God. That's crazy. Tennis was really my sport. I didn't have a backhand though. <laughs> I was athletic enough though where I was going to get. I was just about point. to say you're because you're so fast and you probably had like a wingspan like this. <laughs> of course you could go around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get around that ball. No. So every single sport, I even, I tried lacrosse, was terrible at it. <laughs> I did all these things. And when I look back, the footwork and everything and tennis, soccer that I was able, able to develop playing all these sports really helped me become the athlete that I was able to become, you know, and then I never got burned out with basketball because it wasn't the only thing I was doing. I had fun playing these other sports and then boom, basketball, because basketball was year round. But I was hitting all these other sports at different times in the seasons. I was having fun with all of them, but then I could go back to my one true love, which is basketball. Yes. Parents do not realize the benefit of playing multiple sports and how something from, you know, there's actually a lot of similarities between the footwork, between basketball and tennis, and also a little bit of ballet, which is why you don't, it's not abnormal to hear basketball players or even football players take ballet and, you know, just the eye-hand coordination and all this stuff. It, it is it is really, really advantageous. So, At what age did you realize that, hey, I can be really good at basketball? And maybe that's a stupid question because knowing your father, like it was always in the back of your head, like I should be a good basketball player. I'd probably say the age that I felt like I knew I was special. I went to a school called the Key School and they were really good lacrosse. It was like an outdoorsy school that we went to. My mom had us at, but I was in the seventh grade. And the varsity coach at the school was like, hey, man, you can play varsity. And I would play practice against a lot of the varsity guys, and I was holding my own. They were bigger and stronger, but 
I was holding my own against these guys. I was like, okay, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. So that right there told me that I was on the right path. But I'd probably say I really knew I was special when the WCAC schools started recruiting me to come to their schools. And how old were you then? Eighth grade. So like 13, 14. And that's the Matha, O'Connell, Good Counsel, St. John's, which is where I ultimately ended up choosing for my freshman year of high school. But WCAC, to me, back then and to this day, is probably the best high school basketball conference in the country, talent-wise, D1 talent, football and basketball. It's just big-time sports conference, legendary Coach Wooten, Coach Danette DeMatha, big-time conference. So that's when I knew I was really on to something. And then I think I knew I was going to be really special when I was on the first first cover of a magazine my sophomore year. Um, it was called Rise Magazine. So when I finally saw that, I was like, that's a big deal. <laughs> now I'm really on to something. Like I'm on the cover of a magazine that all my high school peers are seeing. I'm pretty good. <laughs> You're like, I'm feeling myself right now. <laughs> just, a little, just a little bit I was. You know? <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you happen to be, this is not abnormal. I think once you reach an elite level of any sport, you end up, playing with people that are going to reach similar elite levels and eventually the pro levels. So you talked about Ty Lawson and Michael Beasley, who I know you're really close with, but it's, it is really interesting that it sounds like around that period, maybe sophomore or junior year, you got linked up with those guys and there became this like really special relationship and brotherhood where you probably pushed each other on the court, but you guys were like, sounds like pretty tight off the court too. Yeah. Our area was so competitive. So competitive from that standpoint. I mean, all of us were, so KD and Ty were in the 06 class. Michael Beasley and I were in the 07 class. And you had so many other guys in those in both of those classes that have went on to be NBA players. Um, but in our class along 07, we had four McDonald's All-Americans with Chris Wright who went to Georgetown and Austin Freeman who went to Georgetown. So all of us growing up together, we were competitors and you all you're always looking over your shoulder to see what he was doing, you know. And if he's in the gym over here, all right, well, I'm going to the gym over here, and I'm going to work harder than him. So we were constantly pushing each other, and then we'd always link up to play pickup all the time. You know, we were playing pickup. There was at Maryland, run and shoot, different gyms, and it was it was an invite only type of gym. So if you were of that elite status as a high school player, you were getting that call. So you're in that gym is nothing but talent and D1 NBA potential talent. You had to, you had to be really good and had to be, you had to bring it every single day. If not, you were going to get killed. That's awesome. So here you guys are a bunch of ultra uber talented guys, pushing each other, making each other better, setting the foundation. You end up earning McDonald's all American honors and you become a four-star recruit. And then here comes your decision about college, which I was, I'm really fascinated by. And I didn't know a lot about it until I was reading through it. So take me kind of through the process of how you made the decision to go to Duke. It was fairly easy. Was it? It was easy, but hard. Okay. And it was hard because it really was down to two schools, Louisville and Duke. And a lot of scouting services had me committed to Louisville as a seventh grader. Oh, wow. Every recruiting site next to my name said Louisville committed, even though I had never said anything. I had never verbally committed or said, oh, I'm going to Louisville. It was just just out there. Wow. Dad played Louisville, won a championship at Louisville, jerseys in the rafters. He's going to Louisville. 
And then finally, I get a call from Coach Johnny Dawkins. I call him Uncle Johnny Dawkins. Um, him and my dad played together for the 76ers. So I get a call from him just as a just as a family call. Wasn't wasn't tampering or messing with the commitment thing. He just called <laughs> me. Hey, he's like, hey, you know, just curious. Matter of fact, he called my mom first. And he said, Hey, Monica, is Nolan going to Louisville? Like, is that is that done? And my mom said, No, like, absolutely not. It's not done. And he goes, Oh, okay. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna call you back. <laughs> so then he gives me a call. Gives a mama call back says, "All right, we we want to recruit. We want to recruit him." So that that's that kind of opened the door to Duke, which was amazing. But when I ended up making the decision, so my sister went to Louisville. Um, in honor of my dad when he passed away, Louisville gave us all scholarships. They honored my my my, my dad by saying, "Sydney, you get a scholarship, and Nolan, if you want to come here, you get a scholarship as well, even just just for the education." And my sister, my sister decided to go to Louisville. It was extremely hard for her to be Derek Smith's daughter on the Louisville campus. So in my head, I'm calling her and there are days she would call home and she'd be crying to my mom, like it's hard being here. You know, I'm overwhelmed by the by the love that my dad was given. But she even said that one of the professors taught her taught dad. So she was just like, it was it was just a lot. It was a lot of emotion. So I, in my head, I'm like, if I go there as Derek Smith's son, gonna wear the Louisville Cardinal jersey. Every single game, I'm gonna have to run out in the Freedom Hall with that much emotion on my mind. As a 18 year old kid, I feel like that was just gonna be a lot. And I always wanted to follow my dad's footsteps. I did, but I I knew I could also follow. So it was going to another school, and that's when my relationship with 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 Johnny came into play. I was like, all right, well, I can still go somewhere where I have that connection to my dad. Let me go here. So that that really helped with, with Johnny being here and choosing Duke. But then Coach K sitting in my living room telling my mom that it was bigger than basketball. That was the pitch. Like when the ball stops bouncing, he's going to have a family, a school that's going to take care of him. Now I'm still called the brotherhood. Back then it wasn't, that wasn't the term, but it was, it was just come be a part of this Duke family. This Duke family is strong. He's going to have a great career here. He's going to work. He's going to have to earn every minute that he gets, but he's going to have to earn it. We have McDonald's All-Americans here, so it's not going to be easy for him. Are you good with that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've been in the gym with Katie and Mike Beasley since 11 years old. Of course, I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm not scared of anybody. So, yeah, let's let's go. And that's why I ultimately chose Duke. Wow. You make it sound so simple, but I think like there's just so much behind that decision. And it's such a meaningful and also very smart and mature decision. And like the way you made it, you were also like very emotionally aware of how it was going to affect you and what you needed as a 17 or 18 year old, which honestly, like, you know, at 18 years old, how much do we all really know about like what we need, you know? And like, because your, your mom went to Louisville, right. And you had family back in Louisville. I mean, just like you're, you're everything you like so much of your roots were tied to that. And so that's probably why everyone was like, Nolan's definitely going to go at 12 years old. Like, obviously, 
but it, it wasn't an obvious thing. I know Coach Dawkins has been a part of your family and your has known you since you were a little kid. And so it's fascinating to think that like that was your way of like maintaining the relationship with your father, but in just a different way that people didn't expect. Absolutely. Uh, that, that connection, that connection was much needed. It was much needed. It's crazy. So he ended up leaving after the first year. He went to Stanford. And crazy story. It's it's really relevant to this this day and age as far as the transfer portal <laughs> goes, which is flooded nowadays. Yeah. I thought about transferring because I feel like I felt like I was losing that connection to my dad. It was nothing against Coach K and and and, and the and the coaching staff that was here, but that was that that was that connection. So I went to Philly and was working out that summer, and it's a crazy story. I wasn't accepting calls from anybody for about a month. After he left. After he left. And I didn't I didn't answer his phone calls. I didn't answer Coach K's phone calls. Wow. I was just so upset and so lost and didn't really know, okay, well, this was all so perfect and now it's now it's ruined. In my head it was ruined. I was like, that that was my connection to my father. That's why I chose really why I chose Duke. You know, and now he leaves and now now where am I gonna go? Am I gonna go with him to Stanford? Should I go somewhere else? I feel betrayed because as as a young kid, I think for me, I lost that father figure. And I've already lost the father. I lost my father. So now I'm losing my father figure. And you keep losing that person in your life that's supposed to be your role model. It, it hurt. It, it really hurt. So I remember as a, as a freshman in college, I'm going through this. I was like, man, forget, forget him. I, I, I trusted him. And then finally, my mom called me. She's like, son, call Johnny. Call Coach Dawkins. She's like, you have to pick up the phone. I'm like, all right. So I listen to my mom. I call him. And the first thing he says is, he's like, son, I'm sorry. He's like, because he didn't get to tell me before it went public. Hmm. He's like, it happened so fast. And boom, that's, I'm sorry you had to find out that way. I remember I found out, on, I think it was on the ticker. And then people started texting me like, Johnny's leaving. Johnny's leaving. So he apologizes first. And he's like, son, first thing I want to say is, Trust Coach K. Trust Duke. He's going to take care of you. He's going to be the father figure that you need. And when he told me that, I immediately called Coach and I said, I'm all in. Like, I'm good. Sorry, I haven't, I've been busy. I think I made up some lies. <laughs> I've been busy <laughs> driving, running around, whatever agent we call Coach K. I didn't just be like, hey, Coach, I'm sorry. I've been ducking your calls. I was going to say, I'm like, how many people just like ignore Coach K's calls? Like, it's a pretty big deal if you're ignoring Coach K's calls. <laughs> uh, I think I just always, I think I always just said I was training. I was in the gym when you called and got to call, whatever, whatever excuse I made up with. I told him, look, Coach, I'm all in. And from that day forward, Coach and I have had the best relationship. He really took over that role as my father figure in my life. Especially when Johnny Dawkins said, trust him. I trusted him and the rest was history. (laughs) Wow. That's really awesome. I think that from the sports side, the media side, you know, a lot of people just see Coach K. We all know who he is. He knows what he's talking about. His basketball IQ is off the charts. Discipline is a huge thing. And I don't think a lot of us, even for myself, being a Blue Devil, even though my coach got him to come and speak to us, our tennis team, before we went to NCAA. So that was really cool. But like, we don't really get to see the softer and fatherly side of that. And so I would love to hear what that experience was. You're trusting Coach Dawkins and now it's like all of a sudden 
you had that trust, like it opened a new relationship with Coach K. Definitely opened up a whole new relationship. And one thing I'd say about Coach is just as far as his off the court side, non-Coach K, just Poppy, Mike, what his grandkids call him, they call him Poppy, like that, that side of him is so different. And he has three daughters, you know, he has three daughters. And now a, a proud girl dad myself, mm. a daughter softens you up. So for anybody that sees Coach and thinks that he's just some <laughs> hard dude that's always ready to fight, he's a West Point guy, he's just always angry, right. he's not. He has three daughters. <laughs> so how my daughter softened me, he softened up triple that. <laughs> yeah. They're all here in Durham. He sees them. So he's always had a soft side to him and a, and a nur- very nurturing side that takes care of his guys, takes care of his players. And what he did for me, he's done for so many other players that have either gone through something here. Coach is a big mind guy when it comes to just the, 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 psych- the psychology of being a basketball player, being a human. He's always aware of how a player might be feeling, how a player might be thinking, and what they're going through. And that's one of the best things I've I've observed of Coach is that he handles that stuff better than anything he does. He, he knows the X's and O's and all of that. He's a basketball coach. But the motivational side, the psychology side, how he handles our emotions is what has really made him special. And I think having three daughters – has been a huge, huge impact on that because he has this all. I mean, listen, (laughs) I'm a woman and this is more than enough for this world to handle. I mean, just a lot of estrogen in the house with three daughters is you have to have a lot of patience and your emotional IQ has to be like well improved and mature to be able to handle all that. So all this happens probably at just the right time because eventually you guys win the national championship that allows you to grow, that allows you to find your footing and really get confident. It's not that I want to gloss over it because it's a huge part of your journey, but I feel like so many people know about it. I'm, I'm interested in like the stuff that happens in between. So you win the national championship and you get drafted by the Portland Trailblazers. Like how much was playing professional in your purview versus wanting to coach? I think I always, I always wanted to have a long career, obviously playing, but it, for me, it was NBA. <laughs> I think my, my dream was always NBA and I achieved that first round pick injuries happened, And then I took it overseas for a little bit, but I think even when I was overseas, it was always like, okay, am I going to get back in the NBA? You know, that's, that's a grind to get back, especially after suffering some injuries. I, I started kind of game planning my next step while over there. Um, whether it was watching film with a different eye, talking to different people that were either already in coaching, just saying, hey, you know, what kind of stuff do you do to get into coaching? What's What what steps do I have to go through to get in? And really laying, laying the groundwork early to set it up, you know, because I always wanted to be a brother, a mentor, and get back into this college world to to be exactly what I felt like my purpose was, which was you know, a role model to these young players coming up behind me. You know, the topic of retirement and transitioning away from sport, as I've told you, I mean, it's like the resounding theme 
of this show. And it was a huge part of my journey and a huge part of my struggle as well. And so I'm curious about your experience leaving basketball as a player. How hard was that for you to kind of like come to the realization as you're overseas, you're like, I don't really know if I'm going to get back to the NBA and this might be it for me. It was extremely hard. It was extremely hard because, you know, for me, it became due to the injuries. I tore my ACL. I was back here and then I tore it again at the end of a full year of rehab. And that was extremely tough because, again, I put in that same work and passion to my rehab that I did as a player. Um, and then, boom, it's it's taken again. Like, all right, you got to start all the way over back at ground zero. You're back on the surgery table. Yeah. So it was it was emotional. It was a lot of tears. It was a lot of anger. It was a lot of asking why. Like, why am I going through this? That's one thing I learned due to my dad's that I learned to stop asking why and, and and say, well, God, God has a plan. You know, things things are happening in your life for a reason. I quickly turned to that and I turned to my pastor here in Durham, Pastor Tiff McCarter, to help me answer some of these questions as to why. Why is it happening? Why me? Why now? He opened up my eyes to that. And that transition was extremely hard, but I was able to get through it with with faith and with family. And it's crazy. Through my injury, I was able to meet my wife again. We had met in college, but she happened to still be here in Durham. Oh. She's in the Air Force. I'm not going to go through the whole story. It's an amazing story, but I'm not going to go through that. This isn't the love. Why not? If y'all want to hear it, I can, I can go through it. Of course I want to hear it. <laughs> I'll sit here all day and take a love story all day, any day, 24-7. Let's hear it, Nolan. All right. So the love, the love story, it's an amazing story, and it's the greatest part of my injury. When I came back down here, she was still here. She was finishing her ROTC commitment at Carolina, and it was literally, she had about five months before she left to her first deployment, which was in Great Falls, Montana. So during that time, we reconnected. I saw that she was still here. And we had, we had talked. We had still stayed in college for five years since college. I always would check in on her. Hey, how you doing? So she, she was down here. I texted her. Hey, I'm back in Durham doing my rehab. Would you like to grab some food? So we got lunch. We just kind of hit it off, um, just like we had never left back in back in 2011 when we had first met. Lunch turned to dinners. Dinners turned to another dinner the next night. So just that connection was there. Yeah. And when I look back at the injury, I'm like, we, if I wouldn't have got hurt, we would have never reconnected. Not on that level. We would stay friends, but it allowed us to reconnect in face to face, in contact, and. I say to everyone to this day, it was the greatest, worst day of my life, tearing my ACL. But yeah, I got to reconnect with my now wife and mother of my two kids. It was a blessing. It was it was a blessing. And from there, like I said, she was about to leave. She ended up leaving five months later. She came back in December. She left in November. I proposed to her. <laughs> Two months later. Wait, how long had you guys been dating or talking at that point when you proposed to her? Sounds like less than a year. Definitely way less than a year. And when you know, you know. When you know, you know. And we had known each other for five years. Right. But the timing wasn't right. The timing. The timing was not right during that time. I was in the NBA. I was traveling and all that good stuff. Um, so it wasn't right. But then, boom, I come back and I'm injured and I'm here and we're connecting and we're back connected. It was right. And it's funny, my sister always, my sister told me at one point in between there, she was like, that girl loves you. 
She's the one. Aww. <laughs> That's why you always listen to your big sister. Your big sister normally always knows, but That's awesome. You know, I was kind of like, nah, whatever. Like I'm not I'm not listening. <laughs> like but boom, she she, she was, was right. right. Do you believe that things happen for a reason? Absolutely. I absolutely believe that things happen for a reason. Do you have a sense of like your dad's watching over you in some ways like do you feel like he had a piece in in some ways, it's like so poetic to think that as one chapter was ending, let's call it maybe your first or second love, they're intertwined, right? Basketball with your family and your dad, let's call it your first love. And the moment that you think something is over and done and you don't really know what kind of hope there is, because a lot of athletes feel that way. It's like, what is my purpose in life? Like this has been my everything, especially when you use it as your coping mechanism to deal with all this other stuff. And then just when you think it's over, like you find like a sense of hope and the love that's going to carry you for the rest of your life. Definitely. You know, there's definitely so many things in my life that have just aligned almost freakishly, but just perfect that I definitely feel like that's how life works. You know, my dad passing, I fast forward to 2010 where I won a championship in the same city that he won 30 years before. Like that right there is just a sign from God. Like he's, he's with you. He's literally walking with you as you go through life. Fast forward, I meet my wife. We have kids. We have a daughter first and a son second, just like my mom did. Hmm. <laughs> All of those things. It's weird when you think about it, but it's like, that's, that's life. It is. <laughs> that's life. And I've always, ever since my dad, I was going to say, well, I want to, I want to be just like my dad. I want to be the role model of my dad. I want to play in the NBA. I want to coach like my dad. All the things are just coming to the forefront slowly but surely, not really knowing how they're going to come, but here they are. Yes. And now here I am with my son. I actually came up with my son's name. Um, my wife, my wife let me. She was like, she's like, okay, you can name the son. She she picked our daughter's name, and I came up. I'm out of sin. I was like, I want to name him Derek. Yeah, I'm Derek Indy, Indy after Indianapolis. <sighs> As soon as I said my wife was like, that's perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. So that's how he came up with his name. But no, life, life is crazy. It's crazy like that. That's really awesome. I was wondering where the indie came from. Now that makes so much more sense, like the Indianapolis and and everything. And so here you are now as an assistant coach. You're making your way towards your North Star of becoming a head coach. And you've adopted all these different roles. And I think like the biggest thing that I've seen with your change or growth. I mean, all of us have grown over the last year. We don't, we didn't have a choice. The pandemic has just like turned our worlds upside down. And I love the fact that you are so vocal with regards to the racial tensions and the social justice issues. And this is not an easy hat to put on. And I'm just fascinated about like, where did this come from in addition to all the other roles that you have assumed over the years? For me, I think it came from a very young age again, and stories of my father. My dad, I remember when I was eight years old, he was probably not too much, too early before he passed, but he, he took me to the Million Man March in DC in 95, 96, right around that time, which was another social activist march in DC, which was filled with people all over. I believe Farrakhan spoke at it. And it was just a, a big time event that that's kind of who my dad was. I remember he, he led the team to it. He was one of the leaders of uh, the whole Washington Bullets team that went. We took the Metro that morning down to D.C. 
And I just remember as a young boy, just kind of, you hold your dad's hand, just kind of looking up at him as he's saying different things. He's like, you know, we're here for this reason. And, you know, it's great for us to be here as as role models in the city. Um, talking When he's talking to the players, I remember he's saying a couple of these things. That was kind of in my mind growing up. And as I got older, you know, just being aware of who I was as a Black man and then who I am now and how can I use my platform? How can I use what I've done with basketball to be a leader in my community, on my campus, for my players? For me, that's the bigger picture. You know, so when we had the protest here on campus, right here in Kayville, organizing that, really why I came up with that was to give student athletes a voice. You know, because I know there's a lot of a lot of student athletes here that felt like, oh, we don't have an outlet to speak. Being at a school that obviously is majority white, for for the minority here, they, they need a place to speak. So just giving them that area was something that I was sitting in my, my, my man cave, like, what can I do tomorrow? This needs to be done. But the best thing about it was the response that I got from Dr. White, Coach King, the higher-ups here. Their support was just amazing. And like, keep doing what you're doing. You know, keep leading, keep being an activist, keep speaking on what's right. And that's the only reason why I do what I do is because my mom always told me, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. <laughs> and if you believe in something and you know it's right, speak on it. Speak on it and people will follow it, follow you. And to me, that's that's what coaches are. Coach, coaches are teachers and coaches are, are in this place to teach and to lead not just basketball, because we're, we're, we're supposed to be grooming young men and women for life. And life isn't always easy. Our, our country isn't, isn't perfect by no means. We have a long way to go before we can say we are about equality. So to be in this position I am, to have a small, small part, a small piece of that by where I'm at, to me, is an honor to be able to do it. But it all started for me with the fact that I've used basketball to the full potential that I should have been using it too, you know, to give myself that platform. That's amazing. So the role modeling was there, especially your father taking you to that march in Washington, D.C. That must have been such a powerful experience. And then using basketball to kind of like strengthen your voice over time. I've kind of been like developing my voice as well. I think there's this misconception that like to be a social activist, like everybody's just born this way and everybody just has a loud voice and you go out there and you do the raw, raw, like it's a progression. It takes time for everybody to build that voice. And I think I'm interested in how you've been able to do it because first of all, I just want to point out like how great it is that coach K and everybody else around you support you. Cause there's no way you would be able to do any of this and going out in the community and being a voice without the freedom and permission of coach K. Cause there's a lot of coaches that wouldn't allow that. They would put handcuffs on you. Going back to like in terms of the voice, Michael Beasley had kind of mentioned a a quote of some sort. Nolan is the type of guy where whatever is going on inside, he's going to keep it inside or he's going to try to hide it. Mm -hmm. Where did this voice come from? Or has it always been there and it comes out at certain moments? It's always been there and I've always saw things, but I think it goes back to, you know, when when I lost my dad, how I got really quiet and would keep things in because I didn't want to be a burden to anybody. I became very quiet. You know, even when I first got to Duke, I was quiet. But about my sophomore, junior year, I started doing, I started opening up. You know, I got 
that relationship with coach. I got comfortable with with my environment. I got comfortable with staff here, my teammates. So I was in a very comfortable environment. And then Dave Bradley started putting a camera in my face with Do Blue Planet. And I was like, all right, I can I can start showing my personality and <laughs> yeah. start having some fun with this stuff. And then I think from there, I started just becoming more and more vocal and started coming out of my shell in 2010 with a championship. I started finding peace slowly but surely throughout my college career. And then boom, here I am being vocal. I've spoken, public spoken. I've done that before. My senior year of high school, I was student body president. So I gave the speech at my high school, you know, so it's not like I wasn't like talking, but there were so many things that I would just kind of sit back and just observe and yeah. boom, finally when I came out of that shell, I was like, all right, I'm going to start, I'm going to speak on this because that's, that's not right. I think that came really right about 20, 23, 24 years old when I finally was like, all right, I have an eye, I have a, I have a heart. I see this. I'm I'm gonna speak on it and see what happens. And people people actually listened to some of the things I was saying on different topics. And in the NBA, I was involved in different you know, groups. The American Heart Association in Portland started just getting involved in so many different things outside of basketball. And I realized I was very comfortable doing that stuff. I found more joy in doing that stuff. I found that joy in helping others. And I had so much fun with it. That's, I think that's where it really started to take off for me. And I want to make sure, like I point out that there's been a lot of growth too, because you and I both took part in our uh, recent Duke Sports Business panel and you were one of the panelists talking about just like the racial tensions and, and social activism and everything. And I know during that panel, you kind of mentioned that you had had to like think about the cost of coming out and being a voice because there is, let's be honest, like it's not easy. And for me over the past, like several years, because I was in broadcasting, sports broadcasting for 17 years. So you're always on like this platform. And I had kind of put myself in hiding because it's like, it's a huge responsibility. Listen, let's be honest, on social media. You say something like you're always going to be a target and you're always going to get like, Hey, there's always going to be somebody. So how did you weigh the consequences? And like, what were the points that like, you know what? I'm going to take this risk, even if it means like coming at the expense of potentially like head coaching opportunities. I think bottom line, I know that long term, when they look back at 2020, you know, he was very vocal. He's not the person for this job. I think when I started saying, no, I'm leaving this house. I'm going out here to protest in Durham. I'm going to be a voice. I'm going to be a a leader for my community. I don't want that job. (laughs) Maybe Hmm. you're not the job for me. And I think that's kind of where that fear of being who I want to be versus being who they want me to be kind of got cut off. Because by the I'm going to be who I want to be and who who the Lord wants me to be. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to use my platform and use it in the right way and spread love, because by the line, that's, that's all it was. Let's, let's spread love to who, who needs it. In this moment, it was Black Lives Matter, but it could be it could be the LGBTQ community that needs love. I'll be there for them too. I will be there for anybody who needs love and who's asking for equality. You know, and if, if I stand for that, and if I'm if I'm 100 on board with any any mission, I'm going to get behind it. And if that school doesn't like it, then okay, you're not the school for me. If I, there's going to be a school that says, okay, we love what he stands for, we love that he's going to be the head coach for our for our our young men. He's going to be a great great leader and, and male role model for our players one day. Okay. I, I like, I like the way y'all are talking. Let's work and we can do something special at your university. 
that's that's how I came over that and said, let's go for it. Amen. I mean, then that's a mature perspective and it takes a lot of gumption to do that because it's like, it's all about like being authentic to yourself. And it's basically saying to the world, like, listen, this is who I am. If you don't like it, move on to something else. And you'd obviously rather be someplace where they accept you for who you are and what you're passionate about. Yeah. Looking back at your journey, there's just so many so many things to point out, but I think like the thing that kind of resonates with me is just the connection with your father. I think there's a lot of people, a lot of athletes that come from single parent households, regardless of what happened. And I'm wondering if when you look back at your journey, not that you would have any regrets or change anything, but is there something that you say like, you know what, I think this could have probably helped me a little bit more. And if I were to share this knowledge with somebody else who was kind of experiencing the same thing, like this is the advice that I would offer them to help them through that process. What would you say? I'd probably tell them to open up earlier if they can. If they can somehow get help and get comfortable with speaking about what they're going through, get it earlier. I got it as a family earlier, but I still went through my days where I was quiet. I was observant. And I think coming out of my shell, I think now I know who I am now at 32 when I started knowing who I am at probably probably a little younger, probably 22, 23. But I would have been more cocky. I think it would have helped me as a basketball player. You know, I did pretty good, but I think that cockiness and that you need that as a basketball player. I think I would have got that more if I would have been fully out of my shell. So I think if you're in sport and you go through a life trauma that you need time to heal, heal, but let somebody help you heal so then you can help find yourself earlier. And I think that's going to benefit you, you know, in your career long term, the more you can get out of that shell. I think that's one thing I'd say I wish I did in order to become the man that I am today a little bit sooner. Amen. Thank you for saying that. My experiences were were nothing like yours and very different, but my resounding theme has always been like, I wish I would have gotten help earlier. I wouldn't have put myself through so much agony for through my 20s or whatever. We're all going to go through stuff, but I think it's that recognition. I think like athletes are really good at asking for help from coaches, but beyond that, like we're really kind of stubborn in that sense because we grow up in a culture where it's like, you just stuff down the emotions and feelings and you push through it. But the problem is, is that that's not how we deal with things in life, at least not as an adult. So I appreciate you sharing your story today, Nolan. Of course, appreciate you. We wish you the best of luck. As I'm relaunching my show, it should be no surprise that I bring on a fellow Blue Devil. You know, I'm going to probably catch a lot of flack for that. So the one thing I did want to ask you about is, do you still think that Miley Cyrus is a top three artist? Because I've been told that you just so happen to listen to her like all the time, maybe as like a pregame situation when you were in college. This might be coming from one of your former teammates. <laughs> Look, I'll say that Miley Cyrus Party in the USA is a top three song. <laughs> top three feel good song of all time. All time? Top three feel good songs. That's that's a different. I'm not saying the top three songs ever, but top three feel good songs. If you need to feel good, lift up your spirits, just have a great day. If you turn that on, I guarantee you. I'm with you, Nolan. You cannot dance to that. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Anthony. It's a banger. Come on. Come on, Prim. <laughs> I mean, 
listen, like it's good. Like, I don't know if it's like top three all time good, even in the feel good category, but you know what? Everyone's entitled to their expression. I do want to thank John Shire for that nice little nugget. I was like, listen, like (laughs) you got to give me some dirt here. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I think it's very important that we wrap up on that because I've got nowhere to go after that. Nolan, thank you for coming on and sharing your Miley Cyrus intel, but more importantly, opening up and sharing your story because I think it's it's so inspiring. I think so many people can really learn from it. So we wish you the best of luck and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. The next chapter with Prince Rick and Pat is a production of iHeartRadio. 